I grabbed the wrong luggage at the airport by mistake. The contents have turned my life into a nightmare. Written by Reddit user Lapis Laguli. As I breathed raggedly from the steady flow of oxygen at St. Rhett Constance Hospital, typing feebly with my one good arm, my one last arm, I'm plagued more by fear than anger as I realize it's not easy to write this. Nothing will ever be easy again. Thinking back, it was a mistake I couldn't have possibly made any easier to make. An error in judgment that will haunt my every conscious moment until my death. But even the thought of death brings me little solace now. My travel bag is a compact, black Samsonite roller, as generic a piece of luggage as generic can get. No unique tags, stitching, nothing. It was part of a set gifted to me by my wife, Mary. Bland, to be sure, but one of the few things she ever gave me of actual use. It was late when I got home from PDX, and a light rain drummed against my bedroom window. I was moving in the stiff, automatic manner of a person battered by a long day and night of travel. I clicked on my bedside lamp and heaved the Samsonite roller onto my bed, unzipped it, and threw it open like a clamshell. I expected to grab my toiletries bag, hurriedly brush my teeth, and be done for the night. Instead, I found myself staring blearily at an assortment of items I didn't recognize, my confusion compounded by a night of too little sleep and too many time zones. At the top of the luggage were some shirts, a pair of jeans, rolls of socks, and a Ziploc baggie housing a toothbrush, toothpaste, and comb. The items were innocuous enough that for a brief moment I thought that perhaps these were my belongings. I had simply forgotten what I'd packed. But after plucking out a folded yellow polo, I knew I was being stupid. I don't even own a polo, and besides, this one was... new. So new that it still had a Walmart price tag dangling from the inside of the collar. The other clothes all appeared new as well, neatly folded, unworn, and still tagged. I sighed deeply and dedicated a cathartic minute to going through every curse, cuss, and expletive in my repertoire. My luggage contained my laptop and a folder of client documents, things I cannot show up to work without. But what shook me the hardest was the loss of what I keep tucked into an interior pocket of my roller when I travel. A silver chain looped through Mary's wedding ring. There's not been a single day in the three years since she died that I've left home without it. It was both a luck charm and a comfort. I can't look upon it without being reminded of my final days with her, the happiest days of my life. I tried desperately to mentally retrace my journey and identify where the mix-up could have happened. But winter storms had deviated flights through Chicago, resulting in a long day of four airports, two layovers, and too many gate changes and delays to account for. It could have been at any number of water fountains, food courts, or crowded seating areas. 
so instead I turned my attention to the open suitcase before me. Perhaps I could find something personally identifying and contact my Samsonite twin directly, rather than spend the rest of the night calling airports. Rummaging through the roller, I found more new clothing, a pair of unworn New Balance trainers, a cheap Casio watch, and a well-worn folded glove box map entitled Portland Streets and Features, a good sign that my twin was visiting Portland and hopefully still in the city rather than having just left. Setting the map aside, I checked the interior side pockets and removed the last two items from the travel roller, a small soapstone statue and a heavily battered gray leather journal, the pages incised with bookmarks, dog ears, and sticky note tabs. Curious, I inspected the statue first. The polished soapstone was smooth and cool to the touch. It was carved in the shape of a man standing atop a small base, one leg slightly forward and his arms fixed rigidly at his sides, like the ancient statues of Egyptian kings. He was naked but for an unusually long crown that covered the man's eyes and extended up above his head in sharp, irregular blades. The visible portion of the face was gaunt and elongated with thin lips drawn into a smile almost as sharp as his crown. Engraved into the center of his chest was a large symbol I didn't recognize and couldn't tell to be a tattoo or a label for the statue itself. In any case, the carving unnerved me, and the longer I held it, the hotter it felt in my hand, until on instinct I unceremoniously tossed it back into the luggage, growling a curse over Portland's hipstery New Age tourist traps and the internet bullshit they get away with selling. More optimistically, I opened the journal, hoping at least for a property of sticker. Instead, the inside of the cover was bare except for a small faded inscription. To pay with flesh the debt of sin, you must invite my master in. What the fuck? I murmured quietly to myself, questioning if this was a prop for some bizarre fetish. The following pages were consumed with columns of ledger-like notes in a language and alphabet I didn't recognize, written in a tight hand so as to fill every millimeter of space. Flipping through the journal, page after page was so occupied, some words aggressively crossed out, others obscured by blotches of ink, or at least in one case, by a splatter of dry blood. I flipped mechanically through the pages in a state of fascinated disgust, at roughly the midway point in the journal, a scrap of thin leather serving as a bookmark signaled a change in content. The page was entitled Jeremy Rodriguez and mercifully written in English. The text below appeared to be a list of biographical information on Mr. Rodriguez. Address, phone number, immediate family members, workplace, birth date, etc., Cautiously hopeful that I had found the bag's owner, I moved the bookmark out of the way, 
disturbed to find that from it protruded a couple of wispy, dark-colored hairs. Shaking off a shiver of repulsion, I tossed it away and read the notes scrawled across the bottom of the page. Causa delicti. Adultery. Two mistresses. Wife, Annabel Rodriguez. Suicide. January 2nd, 18. Pretium. Conflagration. Home. After that, the remaining lines were blank. Confused, I began to thumb through quickly as my intrigue melted more and more into horror. Each page was the same. A name, a list of their personal information, and shorthand notes on some evil committed. Andrew Haddock's Causa Delicti Theft Two gas stations, six muggings. Pretium, flaying. Buena Vista Park. Lucy McIntosh, Causa Delicti, greed, deracination. Thirteen tenants displaced, four homeless. Pretium, dismemberment, workplace. Entranced as I was with flipping through the dozens of stalker-murderer diary entries, I hadn't yet noticed that the light from my bedside lamp had begun to slowly go dark. Not in the flickering, in-and-out manner of a poor circuit or an old bulb, but in a deliberate, gradual way, as if the light was connected to a dial being turned down with sickening patience. As my eyes unconsciously adjusted to the growing dim, I continued to read. Tabitha Smith. Causa Delicti. Murder. Gary Smith. Invalid. Husband. Starved to death while in care. Pretium. Dismemberment. Enucleation. Lee Marshall Nature Preserve. Adam Wu. Causa Delicti. Domestic maltreatment. Wife, Tina Wu. Four hospitalizations. Pretium. Dismemberment. Castration. Hotel. I began to feel a low, throbbing panic in the back of my mind. An animal instinct, left over from an era where man needed to know that something was coming, even if it could not be heard or seen. A voice urgently hissing that there's danger. Be ready to hide. Be ready to run. But a question had started to form in my head. A pounding, horrible question that left me unable to drop the journal and run. Not yet. I flipped ahead to the most recent entry, a page quite near the very back cover. Ronald Olson. Causa Delicti. Murder. Wife, Mary Olson. Various methods. Pretium. Flaying. Castration. Dismemberment. Home. I threw the book away from myself as if it had become a hot coal in my hand. In the last moments of waning light, I glanced frantically around the room and instinctively grabbed up the map of Portland, violently pulling it open like an accordion. The airport was circled, with small notes made for my arrival time. My house was circled, as was my work office. 
There were circles even for my favorite coffee shops and restaurants, all with small, tidy notes on my arrival dates, times, and durations over the past month. But there was also a single red star, a star on the exact place of the warehouse in the industrial park where I'd kept Mary three years ago. The warehouse where, for four days, I'd tortured her, where I'd exercised my every dispassionate fancy and fantasy on her until there was nothing left to do but bury her useless body in the dense forests of southern Oregon. As I stared at the star in fixated horror, the weak glow of light in the room evaporated like the snuffing out of a near-dead candle. There was a heavy creak behind me, and, trembling, I was greeted by a low, deathly voice in the darkness, like a whisper in a mausoleum. Mr. Olson, it appears to be time for an exchange.